I'm Jackie Ferguson, host of the top-rated Diversity Beyond the Checkbox podcast, where I talk to culture creators, game changers, and glass ceiling breakers about everything from finding your purpose to creating inclusive, more productive work cultures. But on this special series, I'm talking to my friends about topics that are a little more edgy, a little more controversial, and getting their personal opinions on everything from race conversations to motherhood to unbelievable stories in the news. Our personal views while potentially drinking bourbon in no way reflect the views of the diversity movement as an organization or entity. Join me as we go way beyond the checkbox. I'm joined by some special guests to discuss today's topic, Black people talking to white people. Welcome to the show, friends. Please introduce yourselves for our audience. Bob, we'll start with you. Hey, I'm Bob Batchelor. I am the Director of Business Intelligence and Content Strategy at the Diversity Movement and a cultural historian. Love it. Thanks, Bob. Roxanne? I'm Roxanne Bellamy, Senior Content Strategist at the Diversity Movement, um, which essentially means I write, research, and edit um, our content for publication. I am Donald A. Thompson Jr., a.k.a. Dr. DEI, a.k.a. it's 8.30 in the evening, a.k.a. I've already got my black crown rolling, and uh, (laughs) I cannot wait to be way beyond the checkbox. Awesome. (laughs) Where's my white crown, Don? All right, so I want to start with a first question around race. How often did you think about race before working with the diversity movement? So I didn't think about race until someone asked me if my, so I'm biracial. So I didn't think about race at all until someone asked me if my dad was my real dad. Because I am a black woman, right? I was a black little girl with a white dad in the 70s. And that was unusual at the time. And after that, I found that I didn't have to think about it much at all because a lot of other people were thinking about it for me. You know, the bias, the microaggressions, you know, it it came to the surface, right? That I was black and was reminded of that all of the time, right? So. I'll say for me, I I was also, I think, maybe fortunate or just blind enough to grow up not really thinking about it at all um, until I went to high school. Um, And my parents sent me across town to a high school in the city, a magnet high school that was predominantly black. um, And my very best friend in the whole world was black. And and so she put me through the ringers in in terms of uh, things that I thought were cute. (laughs) It turned Mm -hmm. out not not to be cute things to say to your friends. Um, for instance. Um, yes. Thank you for the, for instance, Roxanne. I just love when you wear silver, it looks so good on your dark skin, uh, which is like really adorable the first time. But when we've been friends for like five years, I'm like, you should wear more silver. She's like, if, I swear to God, if you say that to me again, I'm going to freak out at you, you know, or um, I'm getting my hair done Saturday. I can't hang out. Well, can't we just hang out after that? Um, I don't, I don't think you understand how long it's going to take me to get my hair done. It's not like yours. And That's then I think black salons. Yeah, 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 yeah. She, it was a whole day. It was a whole day for her. And I was like, she's avoiding me. I think she's mad at me. And so she really taught me I think, to think about it a lot. Um, you know, and just like it was she was my safe place to put dumb questions for a long time. Love it. 
people think that I came from a, a wealthy family because I have a PhD, but I'm, I was poor as dirt. So for me, it's kind of in phases. I was a basketball player and I was good for a white guy. And so I got accepted by black players. And once you're in, then you're kind of in. And so you see the world from a, I went to a high school with, I think there were five blacks in my graduating class, maybe eight blacks in my entire school of a thousand students. But because of basketball, I kind of had an in. Mm-hmm. Um, my heroes were black. Dr. J, when I was really young, um, Michael Jordan later. As an adult, then I went to the University of Pittsburgh, still continued playing basketball with a lot of uh, black friends. And maybe because I grew up in a super racist place in Western Pennsylvania, I was aware of it more. Mm-hmm. When I later became a prof, I looked out for students who were not like me because I felt like they were underserved and they were looking for somebody to look up to. And I enjoyed playing that role. And then more recently, because I'm an intelligent human being, of course, race matters to me. So that doesn't endear me with the kind of people that I grew up with. Mm. But uh, so I probably thought about race more than most people, but I don't know much. I'm still learning and, and still trying to figure things out. Also, because I'm an intelligent human being and I know that that evolution has to continue. That's right, Bob. For me, race was never really far from my consciousness, right? Like for the majority of my experiences, educationally, I was one of the few, if not the only, uh, in most of my classes, right? Mm -hmm. Because I was very fortunate. My parents moved from uh, deep south, Bogalusa, Louisiana, when I was very young, to Connecticut. Um, And so Manchester, Connecticut, right outside of Hartford, doesn't get more light in terms of that part of suburbia, but I was fortunate to be able to go to pretty good schools. But in doing that, right, and then being in some of the advanced classes, uh, I was also very isolated. And throughout my business career, throughout high school, sports became the place where I wasn't the only. But in my academic space, right, race was always prevalent. And then in my business space, in the technology field, I uh, had to get used to, accustomed to playing in an, an arena where very few people looked like me. And so it's not something that stayed on my mind all the time as a negative, but I realized that when I would walk into a room, I would realize that if I went to a golf course for a meeting, the only black people were carrying in the bags, mm-hmm. right? Not, not on the clubs, right? If I went to a nice restaurant for business, the black people there were serving. So it was always in front of me, mm-hmm. the, the racial differences and the racial disparities that I, I saw. Mm-hmm. Thanks for sharing that, everyone. So from a foundational standpoint, we're all aware, very sensitive doing this work. So now let's get into some fun questions, but some serious questions. Okay, here's here's the next one. So I was listening to Jay-Z's album, 444, right? And there's a song called The Story of OJ. And there was a reference to a quote, I'm not black, I'm OJ. Right. So I'm driving in the car and I'm thinking, can black people walk the line of white supremacy standards so tightly that they're not subject to the same racial scrutiny that the rest of us are? And I mean, tight, like 
the way you look aligns with what's accepted, the way you speak aligns with what's accepted, what you're doing as a profession aligns with, I mean, you've got to have so much talent, right? You think about OJ or Whitney Houston, 90s Whitney Houston, not 2000 Whitney Houston, <laughs> different. But I mean, like, you know, the national anthem Whitney Houston, the bodyguard Whitney Houston, right? Or even, I mean, I want to put Obama in there because he was pretty much like black Jesus. Mm-hmm. But did he have to be black Jesus in order to get elected? All right. Mm-hmm. So what do you think? Can we walk this line or no? Yeah, you I have an opinion on the question, right? You you can't out you can't out earn being black. It's situational. Because if there's blue lights behind me in a car, you know what I am? I'm a black man. Mm-hmm. If I am um you know, it's like some people will use the phrase, well, I don't see color. Okay, I call bullshit. Right? If somebody like it, it, it doesn't mean you're a racist. It just means that's just not true, right? If you're describing, right, someone that that you saw, right, burglarizing a home, you don't say a person of a nondescript color of which I'm unfamiliar, right? You say black or you say white or you say someone is light skin or dark skin, right? So we see color. Right. But in, in our country in particular, if you use the phrase Obama, but he was burned in effigy, right? Like the things that were done, right, by people that didn't believe in who he was or what he stood for, put aside the politics of it, mm-hmm. right? In a lot of ways, as we look at Black America and our history, Obama actually set us back from a race standpoint because white people got so pissed off, mm-hmm. right? Like, like they couldn't deal with it. And it, it was an interesting thing. So to me, no, I don't think you can out earn it. I think that you can, one of the things that makes me, not mad, but I, I I speak on it almost every time. If you think about sports in America and you look at one of my favorite teams is University of Alabama. But when they pan the crowd and I see 100,000 predominantly white people in a state that doesn't have laws that protect the people they're cheering for, that's how come my answer is you can't out-earn being black. As long as you're performing for me, good. As long as you're doing something that I'm not threatened by, good. Right. But the moment outside that arena, right, we're voting, passing laws that aren't thinking or caring about what you do, who you are and what you stand for. And that's just the reality of it. I don't say it from a bad place, but like that's what I think about when I see 100,000 people cheering the people that look like me predominantly in a football field. But then if you're 12 people in a jury might not get a a, a good shake. Or even if they're just your middle manager and it's your first it's your entry level job. Right. And you're coming in. You're like, I'm a contender here. I'm going to play hard in the arena. Like, who are those people cheering for you? Are they the same people? Are they cheering in the same supportive manner? Or are they more like, oh, just can you just stand over there and perform, do that thing? That's right. That's right. I had never heard this, like, idea of out-earning Blackness before Jackie Ferguson, frankly. Um, And I remember you said this in a call one time, like, I I just, I thought I could out-earn it. And I mm-hmm. thought you'd said um, outrun it. And I, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh, yeah, you can outrun that. That's cool. And when I like went back and realized you'd said out earn, I was like, oh, wait, that's a totally different thing. Like that's can I be so excellent? Right. Can I be yeah. so excellent that people see me as a complete human being? Mm-hmm. 
And then like, and I mean, I think I told Jackie this, but like a week later I was like reeling and was like, I don't know, <laughs> maybe yeah. not. Like that sucks. Yeah. Maybe not. Because for me, it, it was the disparity was so stark in my own house, mm-hmm. right? And how my black mother was treated in the outside versus my white father. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I said, I'm black. You know, when you see me, you see a black woman, but can I be so excellent or can I do things in, in such the right way, like going into the neighborhood and turning my music down? in such the right way that I'm not subject to the bias. And the answer for me, you know, is no, but I, you know, people do people think that, you know, OJ certainly did in in making a statement like that. You know, when we think about certain black superstars, right. Or political figures. And when I say Obama is black Jesus, just to be clear, that's not the politics, but it's in, like you couldn't, you literally couldn't find anything negative that he did in his whole entire life. And they knew everything about him from what kind of toothpaste he used to what kind of toilet paper he used. And they still couldn't find anything. Right. So they started making stuff up. But anyway, I digress. But it's <laughs> like, you know, what, how do we get to, to a level set? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I read a University of Michigan study that talked about Obama's election uh, carrying on what Don said, actually hurting um, Blacks because even, quote unquote, well-meaning whites then assumed because we had a Black president that race wasn't an issue anymore. And instead, they stop supporting things like hiring decisions and other policies that would help black people directly. And so uh, it's an interesting way of looking at the first black president. And I mean, I'll just say it flat out. I think most people are pretty racist and that's been my experience as an adult. And so, you know, Obama's presidency just made people more divisive, though they faked it more frequently, I think. Yeah, I think, you know, you know, there was this phrase during, and this isn't all about Obama, but it, it was a catalyst, right? Event, right? Both many good things, but also some, some digression outside of the politics of it. There were phrases like we're in a post-racial society, mm-hmm. right? Now that we've had the, you know, a, a black president. But one of the things that I do when I talk to people of differing views, right, is I like to have things in my toolbox that are just kind of like, um, I don't know, checkmate, right? So think about the imagery, right, of Jesus. There is no physical way, the region of the world, right? And and this is, there's no way that Jesus is a white man. The lineage of the, the, the lineage and scholars have, have for this. It's it literally, it's, it's impossible, right? At best, Jesus looked kind of like Mel Brooks, <laughs> right? It, like it's impossible. But if you go into people's homes, right? If you go into Marchorses, there's no black Jesus. There's no dark skin Jesus. There's no caramel colored Jesus. There is mm-hmm. white Jesus. 
Don, right? I feel exactly the same way about Santa Claus when I see a black exactly. guy. Right. I'm like, just <laughs> let me have it. Right. Right. And even if it wasn't like the ethnicity and the lineage, literally how hot it was <laughs> where he was rolling, right? He would have a constant fan, right? Like there's just no way you can say to me that the imagery we portray in our country has any factual connotation, right? And then people are like, we're, we're whitewashing our history. Um, I think y'all did that. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. All right, let me ask this question. No, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> what you're saying makes sense to me, but yeah, I get it. Yeah, so so Jackie, let me just jump on that for one second, specifically to OJ and Whitney Houston, and to some degree to Obama, but not quite as much. If I go just slightly theoretical for a moment, the real challenge is that we're all pawns in a capitalist system. And so OJ was right for capitalist system at that time. There were a lot of people making money off OJ. Same with Whitney Houston. So when she fits into the what's socially acceptable for a black artist in the 80s and 90s, then it's okay. But as soon as the whole Bobby Brown, the reality show, as soon as it all starts blowing up, then the knives come out because then she's just some crazy person and the media plays that up. And it's really part and parcel of what's acceptable within the capitalist confines. Like mm. we're all in the matrix. It's just whether you realize you're in the matrix or not. We're all there and the matrix is called capitalism. So it defines how we look at pop culture yeah. and how we look at pop culture characters and figures in contemporary society. And to be fair, Whitney wasn't just black and failing blackness, right? She was failing femaleness too. Good points. Okay, so then what about Snoop? Here's why I say that. Snoop did not walk the line, right? Snoop was a, a gangbanger. He smokes weed all the time, right? He's got, you know, he's got dreads, right? But if you're like, if your mom is hanging out with Snoop or your kid is hanging out with Snoop, that is cool. <laughs> why is Snoop the exception to the rule? He's, he's, he's too cool, but he's cool with everybody. Like my mom thinks he's cool. My daughter thinks he's cool. Yeah, I think. so with Martha Stewart. <laughs> right. What about it? So why is Snoop the exception? <laughs> why is Snoop so cool? He had just better PR team, better publicists, maybe <laughs> better storytellers. I don't, I guess because I, I guess. And not that I know this from a firsthand level of experience, but um, the sticky icky is a universal unifier. So we we seems to bring people together. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, based on the way things are trending, that's that's not untrue. But there's a unifying factor of just coolness and having fun and. Not not letting the world's crazy right keep you from enjoying and living your best life that I think is more unifying. And so where other folks are having there's you know political divide or there's a wealth divide, Snoop supersedes that because he's all about having a good time and everybody's welcome. 
it's kind of like the persona that I like when I'm listening to his music or I hear him on an interview or something like that. That seems to just be his vibe. Yeah, I agree with that because I think it, you know, if you think about Snoop and where you see him, right? And he's hanging out with rappers, he's hanging out with Martha Stewart, he's hanging out with, you know, um athletes, everybody. Right. Everybody. Athletes, Anderson mm-hmm. Cooper, right? And so that's cool. Yeah, I think that might be why. He's just universally cool. Yeah, there are certain pop culture figures who just somehow rise above everybody else and they get into a little space. Like Bruce Springsteen can say and do anything. Bruce Springsteen could literally kill somebody and people will be like, yeah, that's Bruce. <laughs> hey man, that's Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> you know, Snoop is the same way, but it's a very small, it's a very small subset of humanity, mm. you know, that that ha- basically has a free pass. I think what Snoop has been able to do is if pop culture rolls in waves, Snoop has been able to get up on the board on each one of those waves. So smoking dope is cool now because hmm. it's it's legal a lot of places. Being right. black is cool now. Now, mm-hmm. it's cool when we see it on TikTok and Instagram, mm. but how how difficult is it still to be a black person or mm-hmm. a person of color in the world today? Yeah, Because it's not like being Snoop, but Snoop is elevated on that pop culture uh, Mount Olympus. Good points. All right. So I want to talk about uh, the theory of racelessness. All right. So the theory of racelessness, and I I don't want to get this wrong, so I'm going to read this part, attempts to decolonize the racial and racist imaginations by educating on how racism masquerades as race in society. But we have to acknowledge that systemic racism exists and it's racism, not race, because studies show that we're really only we're less than 6% different in any race between any people. So the genetics aren't very different between any of us. So race being a social construct, what's the, what do you think about racelessness? I think about it like this. Colin Kaepernick kneeled peacefully at a football game while there was a song playing and was run out of the NFL and vilified. Then when black men were murdered in the street with no weapons, black people got pissed off and had protests. And some of them were breaking the law and were violent. And they were vilified, unpatriotic, called the National Guard. And then this racelessness society on January 6th, when people were storming the Capitol, there was a litany of excuses that that wasn't an angry mob. It was patriots standing up for their rights. So the narrative around actions are inconsistent, hypocritical, and are full of a race consciousness that I don't see a material way in my lifetime of that being radically different. And that doesn't mean that if you disagreed with someone kneeling for the national anthem, that you don't have the right to that disagreement, that your opinion doesn't matter. It just means that that was a freedom that we were supposed to be fighting for and holding up, which is peaceful protest. But it's untrue when it's an Afro having black male that doesn't fit into the paradigm 
of everyone should stand for this flag. Well, that flag doesn't represent us every day. That flag in that country doesn't love us every day. And as long as he wasn't hurting anybody, it made, made sense to me. I didn't think he should do it because it was going to cost him millions. I didn't think that was a, like I, I didn't I, I didn't agree with it for a lot of reasons, right? <laughs> the but his ability to peacefully protest police brutality by kneeling, and then the visceral reaction to that, and then the litany of well thought of and well crafted excuses on January sixth when the beacons of our institution, our Capitol building was stormed, kill Mike Pence. And that is, is okay, right? Like that is not, that, that's not a major issue. That we're overblowing, right? And so racelessness gets me giggling because I think about those things that are in the front view windshield for me. And that term just doesn't, I, I don't even know how to get my head around that. That doesn't mean I'm not naive or wrong or don't need to be educated. So I think, um, you know, I've read a little bit of uh, Sheena Mason's work on racelessness. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you look at it as, okay, so race is a construct mm -hmm. before somebody said race was a thing, like race wasn't natural, just like we people named the thing that's a four legged canine, a dog. Mm -hmm. Before that, there was no word for it. So we created the word race and its outcomes. We deal with that. But I think it's slightly naive to just think that we can replace hundreds and thousands of years of race with the idea that love can somehow be our guiding institution in, within the complexity of this society. The autobiography of Malcolm X was the single most important book I've ever read. Mm. As a kid mm. who grew up in a racist place, trying to understand things, Malcolm X, Malcolm X's evolution, his life mm. meant a lot to me. And he may have tracked toward racelessness to some degree at the end of his life. Mm. But if you would have pulled him aside and put him on this podcast and said, is racelessness a thing? He would have started mm. laughing because race is so central. I don't think we can outrun all these thousands and hundreds and thousands of years of race being a thing. I would rather confront the reality if that's even possible, because it's racism, as I said earlier, is so deeply ingrained in people that introducing a concept like racelessness you, in a utopia may be a great thing, but I don't see a practicality. And when I left academe, I stopped operating in, or in utopias and tried to get back to practicality. Yeah. Mm, I feel so differently. It really excites me, the whole idea. And every time I listen to Sheena Mason talk, I think, you know, what she's really saying is, um, is what my nine-year-old would say about race. But if you ask him, like, what is race, right? Like, what does that word mean? He'll say like, like this, like people in a species, like everybody, right? Like that's, and it's like the Star Wars definition of race. Like this is a race of people that live on a planet. Um, and Bob's right. Like it's super utopian and very like abstract. And like, and that's what makes it a dangerous idea, right? A dangerous word is this idea that if we 
remove it if it's just a construct. And we're saying, look, we're all pretty much the same thing here. Like, let's stop talking about this. Then we are neglecting the practicality, Bob's word, of hundreds of thousands of years of racism, right? But all that being said, so I 100% agree with Don and with Baba on all of that. I also, there is something so attractive about it to me, philosophically, about the idea that like, we could reprogram Mm. the future, right? We could like, teach children like, you know, that thing, it was wrong. We were wrong the whole time. Pluto was a dwarf planet. Race, it doesn't exist. We're all the same race, right? And that we could like move forward there still excites me, but I'm like sussing it out, right? Like I don't, there is no chance as a DEI practitioner, right? Also just as a human being that I would like ever tell anyone, like I still believe in race. (laughs) My God, that's so like... I'm just totally, I moved past that, you know, because I read a lot online and like, that's not, it's so invalidating, like everyone's experience of what they've done. Um, And I don't think she's trying to do that. I don't think theory of racelessness is trying to do that, but it is dangerous. And that's what makes it incendiary. You know, one of the things that I, I, I hope to share with people that I work with is wherever you are in these discussions, that the ultimate goal is to not be dismissive of other people's point of view. Yeah. That, that my goal, my reaction to something, my perspective on something is not to change you, but I don't feel comfortable if you are diminishing my point of view without having understood my experience. Right. And so I'll give an example with the, all the different things that are happening in our society with the police, for example. Right. Mm-hmm. And so there are people like, well, if you just comply, the police wouldn't have to pull their weapon, right? Mm-hmm. If, if you weren't um, driving over the speed limit, you never would have gotten stopped, right? And all these different reasons to excuse the bad behavior. What I describe to people is, I am still going to call 911 if I have an issue in my home. I don't have anything against the police. I have uh, friends that are put themselves in harm's way to protect us. And I respect that and I admire that and I appreciate that. But I have seven experiences with the police that have shaped my view to where if a police officer pulls behind me, there is a reaction that is very different from those of a white male. Mm. Right. And so if you don't understand and acknowledge my experience. Right now, now we have a problem in relating to each other because that experience is so real to me that I can I can relive it and I automatically become emotional in that moment. Mm -hmm. Right. And so people, whether it is race, whether it's sexual orientation, whether it's your ethnicity, and you've had situations in your life where that has been dealt with in a way that has harmed you. Right. The part that I encourage people in a very serious way is just don't be dismissive. Mm. Right. It doesn't make your point of view wrong, but it doesn't mean that you have the right or expectation. Right. To, to throw away the experiences mm-hmm. that you don't understand. And that's the thing that I try to encourage people to, to do um, yeah. in the work that we're doing. Now, Don, you mentioned having a, encounters with the police that were less than positive, I'll say. I also had a situation where I had a gun drawn on me by a police officer that pulled, I was in a car that had an expired tag and they came guns ablazing which was traumatic, right? 
Bob and Roxanne, have you had any experiences with the police like that? You don't want to know. My, um, I now it, the 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 time has elapsed, so I can tell you this. Okay, I have done things that would. <laughs> what is going to come out of your I mouth? I have done things <laughs> that would make your hair curl in mm. terms of engage, dealing with police. Yeah, and walked away laughing with the police officers. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. I know now would have certainly got, cause you know, Don and I, you know, we're Gen Xers. I know what you, I know what you went through. Mm-hmm. I know the era. I know what I did things that you would have ended up in jail or worse. And mm-hmm. the, the cop slapped me on the back and shook my hand and, and went off giggling. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, my, I, look, I'm I'm a poor white guy. I'm afraid of the police probably as much as you two are. But my experience, I don't have to worry about it. Mm. And now that I look like, uh, you know, old man professor, I never, you know, police. This isn't a thing, you know. So we're talking about the police a lot. But really, that's just a byproduct of how people of color think about institutions mm. in our country. This isn't about vilifying for or against the police, because I've had also a lot of great experiences with law enforcement that have right. helped me yeah. have done different things. So I really want to make that that point. But that fear that I saw, it still breaks my heart when I think about it, because that's a narrative that that they're going to carry with them. Um, and, and it's it's hurtful. It's disappointing. Uh, you know, Roxanne, what's your what's your what's your dealings? <laughs> it's not, I'm just a very good girl. Nothing. <laughs> I'm a hardcore rule follower. It's crazy. Y'all don't know that about me already. Um, like just nothing, just never a thing. Nothing. I would <laughs> readily admit that it was my fault and just try to go home as soon as possible. If they need to call my mom, <laughs> that feels good too. Um, <laughs> I really just never. Um, no, I, I will say though, to your note, I, your story, Don reminded me of a sort of, uh, reverse story about some friends who um, the big night, June 2020 of the BLM protest downtown, when there was lots of sort of crashing things and storming around the streets. And and then they put a curfew in downtown Raleigh for a few days. And a few of my uh, friends, well, most of whom were white men, were sitting outside their apartment building having a beer after curfew. Um, and the cops drove by on a, um, on a golf cart, I think. And we're like, hey, and they just say, hey, you know, and then like they said within, I wasn't there, obviously, very, very rule following. And um, <laughs> they said that, you know, the chant just went around, like, did they just, those cops on that golf cart just say hello to us? Like we're out drinking on a sidewalk. So that's mm-hmm. public intoxication. Um, after curfew, the day after the riots, like what? And okay, I think we should go inside now. Um, and like, but that moment of realization for them was a moment of like, man, this privilege kind of sucks. Yeah. It's, you know, it's important. You know, if we think about racelessness, right. To acknowledge the experiences that some of us have, right. And, and others have different experiences. For me, though, I can't subscribe to racelessness until we're making macaroni and cheese the same. And we don't. (laughs) (laughs) Does does that mean it's sliceable or it's not sliceable? 
We have to make the same thing. All right. So let's talk about macaroni and cheese <laughs> and holidays are coming. So let's talk about the difference between black Christmas dinner and white Christmas dinner. Everything. And why is sweet potato pie better than pumpkin pie? I'm just <laughs> What is on your Christmas table? <sighs> Y'all go first. <laughs> so I cook ham, macaroni and cheese, greens, sweet potatoes. I also make a turkey and stuffing and green bean casserole. I know I'm going to explain this in a second. And cranberry sauce that I make from scratch, not out of the can. Plus rolls and then sweet potato pie, of course, and then a couple other pies and usually a junior's cheesecake because I'm a diehard New Yorker. But here's what I realized a couple years ago. I literally make black Christmas dinner and white Christmas dinner down the line because I'm biracial. And <laughs> I didn't realize I was doing that until somebody was like, so you make full black Christmas dinner and full white Christmas dinner. <laughs> You're working real hard. I know. You're working twice I as didn't hard. realize that I was, you know, just living the Christmas dream through both sides of my my lineage. <laughs> Bob and Roxanne, what, what do you have on your Christmas table? Mine is so similar. Usually it's a fight to get anyone to make turkey at Christmas because I already did it once. But I mean, otherwise it's down the line the same. Uh, it, Mm -hmm. Candied yams are a thing in my family. I've never loved green bean casserole is definitely a thing. Like it's a thing that people bring two or three times. I just think it's horrific. It's a horrific thing to do to green beans. They don't even resemble green beans. And then uh, ambrosia salad, though, I feel like you didn't mention like a congealed salad situation, which it's is kind so of southern, southern and also thing. so 80s. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's so, yeah. Oh, and we have um, aspic, you know, like tomato aspic, which is also oh. very 80s. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, yeah, pretty pretty much that, I think. Not a lot of vegetables. Mm. Not a lot of vegetables. Yeah, I would say that I'm probably not qualified to <laughs> answer this question. But I, I am the cook in the family for these major meals. And I um, subscribe to the poor white guy holiday meal, which means I actually really mm. just care that there is a um, IV of some kind of alcohol streaming into my blood at all times. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the white guy get drunk holiday meal. But so, so I do love it. Natty light and Oreos. <laughs> I've elevated to the point where I don't drink, drink cheap booze anymore. So mm -hmm. that's the one thing. Now, so I can't go home and drink Bush Light with all, you know, my uncles and my male relatives because Bush Light is not drinkable. <laughs> but the foods, I would say, I, I make the same thing my grandma made. Like, I try to mimic that. I make stuffing and turkey and... Mm -hmm. Like, look, green. I don't know what greens are. I don't even, I don't like vegetables. I really try to avoid them at all costs. Bob, we've got to get you some greens. Mm. Pecan pie. And I say it both pecan <laughs> and pecan, depending on just the moment. 
that's your that's your code switching. And um, you know, it's it's all very fat filled and buttery, and and mm. when I'm really drunk, I don't care anyhow. It just it seems to taste good. That's right. That's right. But but it is very different, I imagine, than than the Black Holiday meal. So it is. We there's a you know, and I I do an abridged Black Holiday meal because there are. What doesn't abridged, abridged so, black Christmas an meal abridged, mean? So in mean? a lot of black households, you also get fried chicken. You get deviled egg. All these other, mm. you know, some, you know, black families do chitlins and some of those traditional things. I don't. But, you know, I'm not opposed to it on the table. I might not eat chitlins, but some, you know, I'm I'm down for whatever people want to eat. But black Christmas dinner is usually three times as much as what I what I make. So I do like that. But I do a, a full black Christmas dinner and a full white Christmas dinner. Wait, I got another one if we have like two minutes for it. But um, what what did you leave for Santa Claus um, on Christmas night? Because this is a thing I learned early in life is that we we make yeah. homemade cookies. <laughs> homemade <Santa> cookies. <laughs> And then late in life, I learned that many of my black friends are like, mm, it's Stop Oreos. It. Why are you making Are you cookies? serious? I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, oh my God. God. That's amazing. Or oh, wait, I I was as a kid a little bit just off, right? Like, so I was I was always looking for the detail, right, in every kind of macro narrative, right? So I was telling my mom and my grandma, so wait a minute. White man flies o- across the world, comes through our chimney, going to leave me presents? Yeah, nah, I'm not buying that. Hey, t- tell you what, though, Granny. I remember I was in Bogalus, Louisiana, at my granny's house. Tell you what, Granny, I'm going to stay up all night. And when he come down here, I'm going to talk to him and see about this Santa Claus. Right? So I, I literally, I, I doze off, stand up. I stay up all night. And then they everybody gets up and, and we're opening presents. I go hug my granny. I go hug my mom and my dad. I said, thank you for these presents. Because ain't no white man flying around the world giving me these presents. Y'all have worked hard. I know we don't have much all the, you know, all the time. And get me these presents and thank you. And so for me, it wasn't around. I don't know how we got on Santa Claus. But I wanted to give credit to who was helping me. As a, at a very young at a very young age, and Santa Claus was just like, I, I just wasn't buying it, and I, I I was all about disproving it. And the best my mom did was like, "Don't tell your sister. Tell your sister there's no Santa Claus. I'm punching <laughs> the face. Like, don't tell your sister. You can believe whatever you want to believe, but do not tell your sister." I was like, "All right, cool." But now, Don, what did your grandfather think? Uh, sassing your uh, grandma and your mom. I can't imagine he just stood there or sat there in the I chair. I didn't say it. That, so I'm embellishing. I didn't say anything disrespectful to my granny. I just asked more questions and wouldn't let it go. So the, the reality... Well, that's a shocker. Like, like, <laughs> I would have never guessed that one. He's always been like that. <laughs> yeah. And he's just giving credit where credit's due, right? That's allyship. He's but like, I'm not, it, no white man did real. this. Let's Y'all got me these presents <laughs> and thank you. And and hug in and, and, and thank you for that. And just, just for the parents who may be listening over the holidays in front of their children, 
He's just kidding about Santa Claus. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, my friends. Thank you so much for spending some time and shout out to all the people that we talked about. Maybe not so much OJ, but definitely Whitney Obama, Kevin Costner, Dr. Sheena Mason. Who else did we talk about? Santa. Dr. J. <laughs> Dr. J. Shout out Dr. J. Malcolm X. We are way beyond the checkbox. <laughs> Thank you all so much for spending some time with me tonight. It was so much fun. I love just being able to, you know, share some questions and, and get your feedback and stories. And you are all just so amazing. So thanks for taking some time with me tonight. You're welcome. You. Right. Bye, Jackie. Bye. Thanks for listening to Way Beyond the Checkbox. I hope you are enjoying this special series. Remember, if you like the show, rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcasts and share this episode with a friend. This episode was produced by EarFluence. See you soon.